gather together with other saints to, to worship you, to sing praises to you, to lift up our prayers. Um, this is just a taste of, of the glory that, that we will have in heaven, which we are, in which we are in your presence and, and we experience your glory firsthand. Just a taste of, of singing with the angels, of uh, meeting with saints from all ages. We look forward to that day. But for now, we, we continue to study your word. We continue to lift up our prayers. We continue to sing. We continue to enjoy being together and, and fellowshiping with one another as we, as we lift up our hearts and our, our, our hands. Please bless this time in your word. We pray that you would teach us. We pray that you'd help us to understand your word better. Help us to have a better grasp of how you put your, the scripture together and how it applies to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, today we are once again uh, going to begin with some review. And as we continue through the story, uh, we're going to look from, from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to see that the Bible reveals to us the unfolding of God's story. And the entire story is, is unified, and it's orchestrated by our great God. But, but as we've seen, and maybe as you've experienced sometimes as you've read through the Bible, the, the upper story, as seen from God's perspective, is interwoven throughout the lower story, as experienced in the lives of individuals. One of the goals that we have in this series is to try to build a framework, a framework so that we can better understand how all those individual stories on the, the, uh, on the lower story, how they come together, and, and they're unified and interwoven with God's upper story, that story that he is accomplishing throughout human history, and, and even today in our lives. And so briefly, I want you to walk with me through where we've journeyed already. Uh, we began in Genesis chapter 1, where we saw creation. God reveals that he's the one who created and made everything. The second major event was the fall. We've seen that a great tragedy took place when our first parents rejected God's story. They chose sin. They rejected a relationship with God and that he had made with them. But then we saw that God did something very special. Immediately after that decision was made by Adam and Eve, he promised to send a deliverer who would accomplish victory over the enemy. And that's God's grace. And once again, what is God's grace? What is grace? Receiving something good that we don't deserve. And so grace is when God gives us something good that we don't deserve, that we haven't earned. That's the beauty of grace. Well, third, we saw the human race continued to reject God's story, and because of their great wickedness, God brought about the flood. It was an event in which God, um, God judged the entire world, the entire human race, and he started over with one man and his family, Noah and his sons and their wives. By chapter 11, we again see that mankind has rejected God's way and decided to build Babel, a tower to heaven. And once again, God judges the human race, this time by confusing their language. And so again, help me with the, just a short exercise. We're going to do this every once in a while. Just kind of keep us in the flow and, and, and help build that structure with some key words. So help me with this exercise as we walk through those key words together. So say it with me. We have creation, fall, flood, babble. And then one more time, just to make it stick without it. There we go. Creation, fall, Babel. Good. Some of you even got the motions down from, from walk through the Bible. 
good job. Uh, and then last week we met Abraham. Um, and we saw that God chose one man who would inherit the promise. God, God's, God once again poured out his grace on mankind, but this time God initiated a relationship with an individual with whom he made a formal covenant, a lifelong relationship, a binding contract. And the promise that God had made thousands of years earlier in Genesis chapter 3 in the garden is going to come to fulfillment through Abraham's descendants. And so God is continuing to carry out that promise, but now he's going to work through one family to bless all the families of the world. Now, I, I don't expect you to memorize dates. Anybody here love memorizing dates? We got any? Christo was telling us yesterday how much you love worksheets. And Do you like dates, though? You like numbers? Okay, all right. So just no worksheets. All right. So like, anybody else like dates? All right, cool. We'll memorize all of them together. Um, no, I'm not going to make you memorize any dates, but you can notice that I'm going to start adding those above. And if, if you do want to memorize a few key, key dates, this would be one of them. Uh, 2166 B.C. We can be that precise about the life of Abraham. Um, and so to put that in perspective, we live in 2022. Most of you know that. A um, little bit over 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus. Abraham lived about that same amount of time before the birth of Jesus. A little bit more than that. And so uh, we're, we're about twice uh, the distance from Abraham as we are from, uh, from Jesus uh, and, and his birth. I'm going to change our key word. I mentioned Abraham last week. I'm going to change that to patriarchs, and there's a reason for that, uh, because uh, I think it's going to help us not just remember Abraham, but there's also Isaac and his son, grandson Jacob and the 12 sons of, of Jacob, who, again, who you don't have to memorize all their names, but uh, those 12 sons are going to be the heads of the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and this, this is going to be the nation that inherits God's promise from Abraham. The word patriarch, uh, it's, it's a Bible word that, that's used that simply means fathers. Uh, and so these are the fathers, the, the patriarchs of Israel. Uh, the story of these patriarchs is recorded throughout the rest of the book of Genesis. Abraham and Sarah had a son in their old age named Isaac, uh, which means he laughs because they laughed when God told them they were going to be parents. Um, they had Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah had twins named Esau and Jacob, and they were the best of buddies. No, no. Talk about sibling rivalry. Um, you may have read about Esau and Jacob this last, this last week in Genesis 25 to 36. And that leads us to today's passage where we discover on the, on the lower story uh, how the people of the promise come to be in Egypt. And so there's our next key word, uh, Egypt. Uh, so that's going to be uh, where we're going with that. So one more time, let's put all six of those together. Okay, ready? Creation, fall, flood, Babel, Abraham, or uh, patriarchs, and then Egypt. Do we... I, we go, I guess I got the slides in there wrong. All right, so, so patriarchs and then Egypt. Well, turn to Genesis chapter 37 with me. The account of this journey. Do we have, uh, is there a slide, next slide with sandals on it? All right, I think that's last week's sermon slides. So, gotcha, we'll, we'll get that fixed. Just jump to the part on Egypt then. That's what I was like, something's not right here. Um, all right. Well, the account of this journey of the Israelites in Egypt 
is told through the life of, of the 11th of 12 brothers. A young man named Joseph. What unfolds in these 14 chapters is a story of, of tragedy and, and triumph. It's the story of despair and hope. It's a, a tale of treachery and a tale of forgiveness. And here in this last act of the book of Genesis, we find the desolation of sin, but it is in that wasteland that we also discover the grace and the mercy of God as it flourishes. You see, God's promise endures. And, and behind the scenes, when life seems to be out of control, when it's, it seems to be incomprehensible on the lower, lower story in which we live, where sometimes things just don't seem to connect, and you look at life, and you look at the events, and you look at death, and you look at, at sin, and you, you ask, what is God doing with all of this? And on that lower story, sometimes it just seems like it's all chaos. But behind the scenes, we discover that God is still at work, and He's at work in the details, not only in the life of Joseph and his brothers, but He's also at work in, in your life, in the details of your life. And even when we can't see it, we find assurance that God is accomplishing His purposes. So turn to Genesis chapter 37, and there the story of Joseph, his, Joseph is set up for us when He's just 17 years old. Uh, we're told this. Genesis chapter 37 says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Those are his older brothers, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel, uh, that's, that's another name for Jacob because God changed his name. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Now you know that's going to create some family dynamics that's just going to unify those brothers, isn't it? Oh, oh, yeah, the, the troubles that, that Esau and Jacob had, it's just carried on to another generation. Uh, he loved Joseph more than any of his, of, of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Well, as the account continues, we discover that, that God is going to give dreams to Joseph. He's going to have a dream about uh, the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him and symbolizing his brothers bowing down to him. And, and they ask, you know, what? You, know, you think we're going to bow down to you? You think that we're going to pay homage to you? That you're going to rule over us? Verse 8, we're told, so they hated him even more for his dreams and his, for his words. It came past that Jacob sent Joseph one day out to find his brothers who were caring for the family's sheep. Um, jump down to verse 18. It says they saw him from afar, and before, before, he, came, before he came near to them, uh, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes a dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued, uh, he, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let, let, let's not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throwing him into a, this pit here in the wilderness, uh, but, but do not lay a hand on him. That he, and, and he did this, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Now, I, I remember some crazy stories with my brothers. Uh, I had two younger brothers that were four and, and nine years old, younger than I was. Uh, I remember the imaginary line. How many of you had the imaginary line in the back seat of the car? Cross the line. Mom? Been there, done that? Yeah, a lot of us have. Um, I remember when they crossed it, or when I crossed it. I, I remember the rubber band wars in the living room, and all of my paper out rubber bands being confiscated and spread everywhere, and a mess. Um, I remember my attitude towards them, sometimes not good. And perhaps some of you have had some battles with your siblings growing up too. But, but the sons of Israel, they take things to a different level here, don't they? Uh, the conversation we have, I think, is probably a, a summary of probably a longer conversation that's happening as they see Joseph coming over the, over the fields. Uh, we're told that they recognized him from a distance before they could, probably before they could even make out his face. They saw, they saw this robe of many colors. It was a garment that would have been very expensive. Uh, it would have uh, been very rare, but it showed their father's love for him. And so... So the conversation starts with grumbling and, and the mocking of their brother. Here comes the dreamer. And you can imagine how the grumbling starts to continue and, and, and then it turns into, you know, we could kill him. No, we could really kill him. And to, let's kill him. Um, we're not given the specifics of how that conversation may have unfolded, but, but it, one thing leads to another. Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And so it, it started with this idea that they, they would murder him first and then just leave his body somewhere where it wouldn't be found. Uh, but then, you know, hey, let's, just, let's not shed his blood. I mean, he's our brother, right? Let's throw him into a pit and then they're just going to let him starve there. So they seize Joseph. They strip him of his robe this prized robe. They, they throw him into what was likely an empty cistern, a pit, kind of like a well, but probably a little bit bigger. Um, but what happens next shows the utter chill that you could have felt that if you got too near to their hearts. Look at verse 25. It says, Then they sat down to eat. Can you imagine? Hearing your brother's cries, begging for his life, from a pit not too far away. In fact, later on in chapter 42, it's going to be revealed that the brothers, is, they, they say to themselves when they, they feel like God's judging them, it says, we saw his distress and he begged us. And so there they were eating a meal together and, and they heard their brother crying out, begging for his life. But they didn't listen. Uh, they took his robe later on. They're going to kill a a ram or a goat, I think it was a goat, and they um, took it back to the father and said something happened. He got killed by an animal. Tried to cover that lie for their, most of their lives. But then something happens here. And I want you to consider in this story from two points of view. Again, we're looking at this upper story and this lower story. God's story weaving throughout human history, weaving throughout the, the individual, individual courses of our lives, and, and the lower story where we live, where sometimes things seem disconnected. Sometimes it seems like 
what's God doing? I don't understand. It doesn't seem to fit. For Joseph and his brothers, this scene was just chaos. It was a mess of their lives. The hatred, the scheming, the mocking, the planning, the desperation. Joseph's cries for mercy and ten brothers sitting down to eat. God's purpose and His plan and the promises that He made to their fathers probably felt very distant at this time. And I think they had heard the stories of their great-grandfather Abraham, their grandfather Isaac, and how he met Rebecca, and how God provided this wife when he was in his 40s, and how he provided their father and his twin brother Esau in their older age. I think they heard stories of God's promises, the covenant that He had made with their people. They were reminded of it all the time. But right now, it seemed a long way off. But in that upper story, God is orchestrating something. God is bringing about a greater plan. You see, even, even before they leave their brother, even before they walk away and kill that, that, that goat and, and cover his robe with that blood, God is doing something in the midst of that. And He's taking their wickedness, which is inexcusable, and the only ones that had credit for it was them. The only people to have blame for it would have been them in this. But God is taking that wickedness and He's weaving His plan to accomplish something good, something great that nobody had any idea of. Joseph and his brothers won't see that plan for decades. They won't understand what God's doing in the midst of this. Joseph probably has no idea how God could be accomplishing something good through his present circumstances. But, but God is still at work in the details. It goes on and says, and looking up, look what happens. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. And then Judah, okay, and Judah's, boy, this is, this is the gem of the family, right? And Judah said to his brothers, <laughs> what profit is it if we kill our brother and, and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother. I mean, what a good guy, right? I mean, this guy is just, you know, the son that you'd be proud of, right? Our own flesh. Wow. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. I, I would imagine that there are some of you and there are some times in your life when things just don't make lots of sense. Am I right? A loved one betrays you. Storms come and destroy your fields. A friend fails you utterly. Maybe it's just the chaos of ordinary life. Maybe it's the day-to-day -day boring stuff that we repeat over and over and over again. And sometimes it just feels like this lower story. I don't get it. What, what's God doing? I feel useless. I don't feel like God's using me. I don't understand where I fit and, and what I'm supposed to be doing with my life and, and how God's going to use this in His great plan. Few of us have experienced anything like what Joseph went through, but, but I, you have to understand that trials, 
and hurt and, and normal existence that sometimes doesn't seem like it's something great. They never seem to make sense from our perspective, do they? No. I want you to remember that God is ever-present. God, in the midst of all of that, is weaving His purposes. He's weaving His plan to accomplish what is good. Sometimes that caravan of Ishmaelites that seems like your demise is actually the conduit through which God is preparing you to accomplish His good even further down the road. God's sovereignty is at work, even in the silence. Well, Joseph's troubles aren't over yet, though, are they? At 17 years old, he's sold into slavery. We spent several weeks discovering Joseph's story. Uh, about, about three years ago, we went through the life of Joseph. And so we're just going to fly through a lot of these chapters together today. But he, for Joseph, everything appears to be going downhill. Uh, once he, he was the favored son who was put over all of his older brothers, he was the leader. But now he's owned by another man, by an Egyptian who's named after an Egyptian god. And that Egyptian that he serves is, is the servant of a high official, is uh, um, uh, the high official to another man that, that was believed to be the physical manifestation of the god of Egypt, Ra, a man called Pharaoh. Everything in verse 1 of chapter 39 describes circumstances that would make most men look down and it, and it would drive them into despair. But this isn't God's perspective. And thankfully, it wasn't Joseph's perspective. You see, the world tells us that God's blessings are dependent on our circumstances. You've heard it said that success means we gain access to God's promises of prosperity and abundance in every area of our lives. But in, in these first six verses, God shows us a radical perspective on his view of blessings. Look at verse 2. First thing we're told is the Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. You see, God's blessing is not defined by our circumstances, bad or good, because things are going to turn south for Joseph really quick, aren't they? At least in our story. A few years goes by probably in which he was leading and, and ruling in this house. But, but we have to understand that God's blessings, not defined by our circumstances, God's blessings are defined by the reality that God is with us. Isn't that the message we've been seeing through Genesis? In the garden. God wants to be with us. We sinned against Him. We rebelled against Him. But God creates a plan to restore that relationship because God wants to be with us. Over and over and over again, the human race rebels against this God. We reject His story. But God continues to pour out His grace, and, and throughout the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, He continues to show, 
that he's a God who wants to be with us. And we're told that God was with Joseph. If you've read the story of Joseph this last week, you know that his master's wife tried seducing him, and, and Joseph rep- repelled every offer. Eventually, having been scorned, she accuses Joseph of attacking her. She says, he, this foreigner comes into our house and he's, he attacks me. And Joseph, uh, Joseph's troubles get, grew worse. He was thrown into another pit, this time into a prison. Probably through a hole in the ground, down into a dark building that he existed in for years. But notice how Joseph's life continues to reveal, and how the text tells us, that, that God was with Joseph, even, through, even in the pit in spite of the circumstances. In verse 21, it goes on to say, but the Lord was with Joseph. Do you you hear a common theme throughout this chapter? The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. See, our God wants you to experience his blessings. And he wants for you to be a blessing to those that are around you. Our God wants you to experience success in this life and for others to see that God is with you through that success, whatever that success looks like and whatever kind of success that it is. However, the blessing and the success oftentimes come through the form of trials, like Joseph's slavery. Sometimes they come through temptations, like the the wayward wife that brashly offered her indecent proposal to Joseph. Sometimes God's blessings come through suffering, like life in prison. But the joy of God's blessings in the in the form that they take under his radical perspective will be defined not by your circumstances, but through the reality that God is with you. When we come to Genesis chapter 41, Joseph is 30 years old. Just a few chapters as we read it. You can read all this in 15 minutes. Joseph is 30 years old. Over 13 years have passed since his brothers committed their treachery. 13 years. Genesis tells us how Joseph continued to interpret the dreams of others. People came to him. I had a dream last night. They're scared out of their wits. And, and he reveals to them, here's what God was telling you. Um, while in prison, he re- interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's cupbearer. Um, seems that there was some sort of scheme, maybe. There was some sort of uh, coup or attempt on the Pharaoh's life. And until they were exonerated, or at least one was, uh, they were put in prison too. And they tell Joseph their dreams, and he says, here's what it means. He tells the baker, your head's going to be lifted off from you. And he tells the cupbearer, your, your head's going to be lifted up. And you're going to be returned to your position of power and, and authority and service to the king. And so the cupbearer returned to the service of the king. We're told that he forgot Joseph. He stays in prison for a little while longer. But later on, Pharaoh's going to have these dreams himself, and the cupbearer's going to remember, oh yeah, there's this guy. And he remembers Joseph and he tells the Pharaoh about him. No one could interpret the dreams for Pharaoh, but Joseph comes. He comes into the presence and he listens to the dreams. And through the dreams, Joseph explained how there was going to be a great seven-year famine that was coming. 
It, it would follow at the heels of seven years of abundance in which God was going to provide grain that you couldn't count, grain that couldn't be measured. And so Joseph counseled Pharaoh to start storing grain and to set some over, uh, someone over the cities that would be able to oversee the keeping of this grain and, and the preserving of this grain and, and, and buildings that would, that would store it until the famine came and, and then it would provide for the people during this horrible, horrible period of seven years. And, and here's where we see a great reversal in Joseph's story. We come to verse 37 of chapter 41. And it says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this? in whom is the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regard to the throne, regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over the land, over all the land of Egypt. And so God... God put Joseph in a position of power for a time when the world was going to suffer greatly. Not just Egypt, but the nations around them were going to suffer this famine. And Joseph was exactly where God wanted him. Years after all the experiences he had with his brothers, years after he had been accused of raping a woman that he had repelled for many, many years, many times. But throughout all that, God was preparing Joseph for this time in which he was going to provide for many people and save the lives of probably thousands or millions. But I want you to notice Joseph's perspective in all this. I, I believe that, that Joseph understood discouragement. I mean, no doubt. You've been through it and you've been faithful in those times, but you still feel it, don't you? It hurts. You still have questions going through your mind. I'm sure Joseph experienced all of those things. He was human. But throughout all of his trials, he continued to serve and trust his God. At the end of chapter 41, we're told that Joseph married. He had two sons. But in verse 51, uh, we're, we're told that he names those sons. And it tells us a lot about what's going on in Joseph's heart. It tells us a lot about his faith. He names his sons. It tells us about his perspective. He gives them Hebrew names, by the way, not Egyptian names. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so he saw God's hand at work in the midst of these things. But again, God's not done with the story, is he? Joseph's life's not over. In chapter 42 through 50, we find a beautiful picture of God's grace and forgiveness. I, I think the last time that we were in Genesis together, uh, we spent two months discovering the beauty of what happens in Joseph's life and in the life of his brothers next. But, it, but if I can just condense their story into a few words for now, this is what we discover. Uh, the famine does come. It was a famine like they hadn't experienced probably ever or had been decades or centuries. It does come to Egypt. It brings chaos in the land of Canaan where Jacob and his 11 other sons still live. And, and so Jacob sends his 10 brothers, the same 10 brothers that had thrown Joseph into the pit, he sends them down to Egypt. And they're to find grain there and bring it back so that their family can live. And... By this point, Joseph is 39 years old. How old was he when he was sold into slavery? 17. So 22 years have gone by. And, um, and they run into one another. And do they recognize Joseph? 
no. Probably makes sense. He probably looked like an Egyptian now, walked like an Egyptian. Um, he wore the makeup of an Egyptian. That was not planned. It was just, you know, sorry. Pastor's jokes, and they're worse than dad jokes, right? My wife would be rolling her eyes right now. Um, and so they don't recognize him. He does look like an Egyptian. And he has a shaved head. He's probably wearing the black makeup and all that. And he's a lot older. You know, he's not a teenager anymore. He's been in prison for a few years. It probably hardened him a bit, as handsome as he was. Uh, but he does recognize his brothers. They're older too, but they probably got the same beards and um, same robes. Still look like Hebrews. Still talk like Hebrews. In fulfillment of his early dreams, they do bow down. They come to him as the second most powerful man in the world, and they bow the knee and recognize his authority. And through a series of encounters and tests, Joseph provides for his family. He provides for his brothers and all of their children. Eventually, we see that God humbles these brothers. He brings them to a place where they are, they are utterly broken. Uh, we see that over the many years, they'd experienced guilt for what they did, and especially when things start going really bad for them. They start asking themselves, didn't we hear a brother in the pit? Didn't we ignore his cries? God is, God is doing this to us. And so the guilt was there, and the experience was there, and they, they carried that for years. As you read through the story, though, you're, you're left wondering if Joseph is plotting a great plan to bring about revenge on his brothers. You read this story and you're going, what's, what's the scheme going on here? I mean, he's going to really give it to them. And, and, and woo, they're going to get it and he's going to throw them in a pit. Um, you're, not, you're not given all of Joseph's motives right away. And you're not given the end of the story until the shoe drops. God, God doesn't reveal Joseph's heart right away, but eventually he does reveal himself to his brothers. And, and what happens is a beautiful story of forgiveness. A beautiful story in which this man... After everything that his brothers had done for them, he, he completely forgives them. He weeps with them. He eats with them. He, he, he spends time with them, getting to know them again. He provides for their little ones. Um, and so he forgives them. He commands them to bring their families down to Egypt so that he'd be able to provide for them. He says, I think there's another four or five years of the famine coming. So they're barely into it. And... He's going to provide for them through the next several years of that famine. He gives them some of the best of the land in Egypt. They live in the land of Goshen. But I want you to see that, that God was weaving something greater. Even throughout all those years of suffering and all those years of chaos, God had a plan that He knew it was coming decades down the road and, and that many lives were going to need, need to be preserved. And God knew that Joseph was need, going to need to be trained for this moment. And I want to take you to the closing chapter of Genesis where we once again see God's grace poured out. Grace is what? Okay, I, I heard key words in there. All right, something good that God gives to us that we don't deserve. Here we see grace exemplified in the life of Joseph who forgives his brothers. But it's that forgiveness that's lived out in Joseph's life that brings us to the heart of it all. Turn back to chapter 50 with me. Jacob had come down to Egypt and he was reunited with his son. Sometime later he passed away and we read this in verse 17. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. 
We're in verse 17. Joseph wept when, he, when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and they fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. Slaves. You see the irony? <laughs> so once again, they humbled themselves before Joseph, this time knowing who he is. But notice that Joseph's response in the incredible way that it echoes the grace of God, which, is, which God has extended to us throughout the Scriptures. And verse 19 says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There are at least three things that Joseph highlights. Okay, first of all, um, they meant evil against him. Uh, there was no hiding that, was there? Uh, it, it was evident to him. It was evident to them. You know, sometimes we try to cover things up and smooth it over and pretend like, you know, oh, you know, it wasn't a big deal. Well, he doesn't do any, he doesn't tell any lies to them. Um, it was evil. And so he doesn't make it look like, he doesn't try to make it look less than what it was. They were responsible for their wrongdoing. But secondly, we see that he forgives them. He, he chooses the difficult path. And, and even now, when their father isn't around to put a show on for, Joseph shows grace and he shows kindness, and he comforts his brothers. But third, notice again the profound words, and they come from the lips of Joseph, God meant it for good. And don't miss the beauty of that statement. He doesn't say, he could have said things differently, but he doesn't. He doesn't say God turned their sin into something good. He doesn't say that God fixed it. He, he, he uses the exact same word. He says, you meant, God meant. You see, in God's sovereign plan, as he's on the upper story, taking the events of our lives and orchestrating them for something great and good and for his glory, God was intending good through the actions of others. He was working all along and was using even the evil deeds that people were committing to accomplish a greater plan. God didn't have to correct the course because of the failures of others. He was already an infinite number of steps ahead of them. He saw it coming. He was already orchestrating His plan. The same was true when Jesus hung on the cross. We can say Herod put Him there, right? Pilate put Him there. Certainly the Jewish leaders and the people put Him there. The, the evil rejected and crucified the Son of God. And yet in God's goodness, He was moving all along and, and using even their evil to accomplish great good, the salvation of many. And God meant it. He intended it. He was planning it. There's one more thing. You, you can't miss the ramification for this in your life. My friends, God knows how you've been wronged by others. He's seen it. God knows the evil that's been committed against you. He knows the hardship. And He knows the troubles, your sorrows and your griefs. But the life of Joseph is not a story that teaches us that God picks up the pieces. The life of Joseph teaches us that God meant it. He meant it. 
all of it, all of that is already a part of what he's intending. And it's so much beyond what our limited perspective shows us. It's not that God rejoices and says, ha, 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 watch how miserable I can make their lives. It's that God says, in the midst of this world, I, I'm doing something that is beyond what is seen with the human eye. His story is woven throughout our story. And though others may mean it for evil, understand that God is using even the worst of it for good. The greatest sin that's ever been committed in human history was committed against God's Son, Jesus Christ. And even that, God was using and He meant it for good. The, the, the Christian word, the theology word that we use is sovereignty. God is sovereign. He's working it. He means it. And He means it for good. He not only means it all for good, but He accomplishes what is good. And so if God is the one meaning it for good, then we have no need to pay back evil for evil. And if God is the one meaning it for good, then we can find comfort and grace in the midst of our suffering. Because we know that God has a plan that's bigger than ours. Even if we don't see it on this side of eternity. I was talking with one of you about the book of Job the other day. You've been reading through Job this last month. One of the things about Job's life, you know, we see things from the upper story, don't we? We see the conversation going on between Satan and, and God, and Satan saying, ah, but look at everything you've done for him. If you take this away, then he'll curse you. And Job doesn't. And he says, if you take this away, then he'll curse you. You take away his health, then he'll curse you. And there's all this stuff going on, and as the reader, you're seeing things from the upper story. But at the end of the book, I mean, God answers Job, but you know what God never does in the book? He never sits down with Job and says, hey, let me explain what I did. Let me explain to you how, how all this fit together. From, from, from what we know, Job never knew. He came to the end of his life, and he was faithful. And God orchestrated it and did phenomenal things. And, and now we have the book of Job for us to learn those lessons. But from what we know, God never sat down with Job and said, hey, let me fill you in on all of the details because you need to know this. God doesn't always do that for us, does he? Sometimes he does, and sometimes you look and you go, wow, that was really cool to see how God took that bad thing that I went through and he brought about some great things, but sometimes he doesn't tell us. But we can trust him. In closing, I'd like to take you to a verse in the book of Romans. Uh, we've been seeing throughout these first three messages that God is a God who invites us to relationship. The promise of Genesis chapter 3, the promise that was carried on to Abraham, all of these point to the coming of Jesus, who is going to be the one who once again pours out God's grace. He's going to be the one that's going to crush the head of the serpent. He is going to be the one that fulfills the promises of Abraham and brings great blessing to all the nations of the world. And God brings about these promises and fulfills them in His Son. You see, in Him is the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises. And in Him, through His death on the cross and His resurrection from the grave, he has provided the way for you to be restored to a relationship with your Creator. Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin. He offers you forgiveness. He offers you redemption. If you only believe on Him as the one who saved you from your sin. Don't earn your way. Coming to church, being a good person, letting the good and the out, the de outweigh the evil deeds. None of that. 
None of that can save you. None of that can earn heaven for you. But heaven is yours. You become sons, adopted sons of the creator of the universe. Redemption, salvation, justification, righteousness, all all these things that God lavishes on us by grace. Something good that we don't deserve. And it's received when you say, I believe. When you believe what Jesus Christ did for you. If you put your trust in him, rather than your works or some church or something that, something else, God forgives you. And that relationship is restored. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we're given this promise. He says, and we know that for, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God wants you to experience his blessing. Not a blessing that's dependent on and defined by circumstances, but his blessing that is defined by the reality that God is with us. In closing, three responses. Number one, if, if, you, if you've never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray that, that you would do so today. He calls you to believe Him. Trust Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian and you love God, then continue to align your life to God's purposes, your story to His story, not your own. Instead of asking God to bless your big ideas that are in your lower story, Turn it around and adjust your entire life to what God is up to so that Romans chapter 8, verse 28 will be exemplified in your life as you see his good brought out. And number three, if you're a Christian and it's not going well for you, things are not making sense in your lower story, get through this by abandoning your will to God's will. Remind yourself daily of God's upper story even as you experience some of the lows and some of the challenges of the lower story and walk by faith. I'm going to ask the praise team to come forward as well as the men as we serve communion today. But let's go to our God in prayer. Father, we thank you for the life of Joseph. We thank you for the patriarchs and what we have to learn through them and through these periods of history as we see you orchestrating and doing something good. Good for us and for your great glory. I know that we don't always see it, Lord. We don't always have the bigger picture, but, but Father, it's my prayer that, that you would continue to teach us to trust you, to love you, to walk by faith, not by sight. And glorify yourself in our lives as we continue to serve you and continue to anticipate your great promises. Amen.